It is Tuesday, September 12th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, we talk about how we vote. Not Republicans or Democrats, literally how we vote. As per usual in American public policy, the people who were actually administering elections had been banging a gong for decades over the uneven application of voter access, voter technologies. A conversation about the decline and reemergence of pre-printed paper ballots in Arkansas. Plus, the challenges of writing a sequel. And this is the first sequel that I've ever written. And so there were a lot of problems that came up during the writing that I hadn't really anticipated. Jeff Ayers talks about the second book in his Rag and Bone Chronicles and a master of Carnatic music in the Furman Garner Performance Studio. Right now, the news. The Scott Family Amazium invites guests to make, tinker, and explore with regional mechanics, craftspeople, and artists at Tinkerfest, Saturday, September 23rd from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Featuring hands-on activities for the whole family, celebrating technology, engineering, art, and more. Information at amazium.org. The final concert of the KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series with McDonald's, Lunch All Day, takes place September 16th at The Medium, located at 214 South Main Street in Springdale. Lunch All Day will be an all-day celebration with previous Lunch Hour performers Pura Coco, Eddie Canyon, Old Man Saxon, and others. Reserve your tickets at KUAF.com slash summerconcerts. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, September 12, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Later this hour, Jeff Ayers is a novelist and teacher in the Rogers School District. His latest book, Skate the Seeker, is a sequel to his young adult novel, Skate the Thief. He'll discuss the challenges of writing a sequel in our second half hour. We begin with voting in Arkansas. Searcy County approved a resolution to move from electronic voting machines to printed paper ballots. The decision came after a recommendation from a bipartisan committee consulted with a pro-paper ballot advocacy group whose leader believes the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Matthew spent some time researching the recent history of ballot technology changes and how burdensome a return to paper ballots might be. Concerns and changes to the process of voting in America is nothing new. A paradigm shift came following the 2000 presidential election. Republican George W. Bush and Democrat Al Gore were in a tight race, with everything hinging on the battleground state of Florida. A big call to make, CNN announces that we call Florida in the Al Gore column. This is a state both campaigns desperately wanted to win. Stand by, stand by. Uh, CNN right now is moving our earlier declaration of Florida back to the... Too close to call column. Ah. 25. For Janine Perry, this didn't come as a surprise. As per usual in American public policy, the people who were actually administering elections all over the country, and specifically inside certain states, had been banging a gong for decades over the uneven application of voter access, voter technologies, voter ballot accuracy. Perry is a professor of political science at the University of Arkansas. All elections are run on the local level, whether it's for president or school board member. And because of that, Perry says each election commission does what they can't afford to do. 
So for a really long time, lots of people had been saying, this really seems like something pretty fundamental that we want to standardize at least somewhat. At the time, there were no guidelines on ballot technology or even ballot formatting, which meant lots of variation. Many ballots used a fill-in-the-bubble method. In some counties in Florida, they settled on a punch card system. These methods, among others, led to errors. Remember to look up hanging chads on Wikipedia later today. The error rate in casting ballots was um, about 1%. Uh, It could be as high as 3% or 4%. It was higher in Florida in the counties that were using paper ballots, and it was lower in Florida in the counties that had already moved to electronic technology. A study by MIT and Caltech in 2001 found that between 4 and 6 million votes were lost in that election, largely due to outdated voting technology. The gong banging was finally too loud to ignore. In 2002, the Help America Vote Act passed at the federal level, with strong bipartisan support in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. The law, in part, provided federal funding for states to replace the punch card systems and move towards electronic voting systems. And while election administrators and political analysts were overwhelmingly in favor of the updates from the law, there were some Democrats at the time who, because it was what we call a trifecta Republican government at the national level, were suspicious of the technology. Who was making the machines? Were the machines, you know, susceptible uh, to interference? Uh, All of those kinds of concerns. But at that time, because we associated the changes, even though it was bipartisan, we associated the changes with Republicans at the national level. After a very contentious, high-profile election, it was actually Democrats in the elections then of 2004 and 2006, including here in Arkansas. I remember some examples in Benton County specifically and also in Washington County of the local county Democratic Party activists, many of whom were encouraging Democratic voters, Democratic loyalists, to ask for paper ballots and to refuse or, you know, not get in line for the machines. Eventually, voters, regardless of party affiliation in Arkansas, came to trust and actually prefer the voting machines. The one we see most commonly today is called ExpressVote. Jennifer Price is the director of elections in Washington County, and as she points out, electronic voting machine is a bit of a misnomer. We actually, the express vote is a paper ballot in the sense that it is printed with your choices on it. You handle it. And so we just view the express vote equipment as just an electronic marking device. This distinction is important. The machine that you see when you go to the polling place is just a more sophisticated way to mark your paper ballot. The only difference is, is did you use a pencil or did you use the express vote? Regardless of how you mark your paper ballot, you finish the voting process by putting it into a DS-200. It's an electronic ballot box and tally machine. Act 350 passed earlier this year in Arkansas, which amended the law concerning paper ballots. Previously, there was no guidance on deadlines to submit results or on how they should be reported. The new law allows counties to still prioritize printed paper ballots and reserve electronic voting devices solely for ADA compliance. But that doesn't mean there are no electronic devices used for the voting process. 
it would still require a county that chose to be uh, hand filled in paper ballot that they would still have to run those through the DS-200 to get a tape and for reporting purposes. The presidency of Donald Trump put the conversation around election integrity front and center in American and Arkansas politics. In previous reporting for Ozarks at Large, I reached out to agencies like the Arkansas Secretary of State and the newly formed Election Integrity Unit to discuss recent incidents of voter fraud specifically in Arkansas. No examples of fraud were provided by either of those state agencies. This disconnect between perceived election fraud and the national rhetoric around election security is the subject of Karen Siebold's research. She's a professor of political science at the University of Arkansas. Some people say the nationalization of politics. I say the presidentialization of politics um, because it's even more than just relating to national issues. It's about what is the president talking about? What is he communicating in his speeches, his campaign rallies, and how is that translating? Siebold says the presidentialization of voter fraud became more prevalent during the 2020 election with the claims of a stolen election, which caused voters to begin worrying that the stories they saw on cable news could be happening in their polling places. Suddenly, she says, voters were afraid their polling places could be susceptible to tampering. That's when it starts to kind of click like, oh, wait a second. You know, you could steal my paper ballot or you, you could change my electronic vote. You you could easily get rid of that or you could, you know, change that if you wanted to. There were stories of people's votes being changed from Trump to Biden, you know, and it's easy to believe something like that because with technology, I mean, there's just so many things that we don't understand about it. We we don't see it. It's not a visual process for us with like the paper ballots. We can visualize that moving from our hands to the poll workers the, the box that they put it in. So it, it's really easy to kind of get caught up in this idea that, hey, this could be very fraudulent. So it's fascinating right now. Janine Perry again. And yet not surprising that now that the shoe's on the other foot, <laughs> so is the argument. Like everybody just sort of switches uh, positions. Perry says this 180 degree turn for Republicans going from passing laws to bring electronic voting devices to the polling place to now being highly skeptical of those same devices will have an impact on the local level. So my concern, I guess, for people in those communities is that we know that the error rate, the mistake rate, is going to be higher, which means more people's ballots won't count. And most of the time it doesn't matter because increasingly elections are blowouts, um, except for in primary elections. But There's no doubt that we're going to have some kind of close election and there'll be a greater percentage of spoiled ballots, as we just talked about, so-called residual votes that will be discarded. And so the outcome won't match what people actually want. And that seems like something we can all agree is probably not a good right in Republican democracy. Jennifer Price says if a county wants to make the move back to printed paper ballots, one of the major factors to account for is the sheer logistics of printing producing, and using paper ballots. Counties are subdivided into precincts for elections. Each precinct has a unique ballot. In Searcy County, there are 15 precincts. Washington County has 323. That means having to produce and print 323 different kinds of ballots just for Washington County. Price says before the predominant use of the electronic voting devices, the looming question was always, 
how many ballots do we need to print? Because if you ran out of a ballot style at a polling location, you know, what do you do? And so that was always, a, you know, one of the pre-election procedures that we did was try and look back historically how many people voted, how many in each precinct voted. Then whenever you have a, a primary election where it's the three different ballot styles, trying to predict that, that was always something that definitely we had to look at and be concerned about because that was when I first started one of the commissioners he would always call me have we run out of paper ballots yet it's kind of like this cue of like we can't run out of paper ballots. In Washington County voters can go to any polling location in the county and vote regardless of where they live. This format is called voting centers so say if someone lives in Farmington but works in Fayetteville They can go to a polling place on their lunch break in Fayetteville and still have access to the ballot that matches their home address. That would be nearly impossible to accomplish with a move to paper ballots. Well, if you're having to send out a certain amount of ballots per site, do you move away from vote centers and then go back to precinct-based voting where voters are assigned to a specific site? would be one of the questions we would have to look at. And then how would we predict the amount of ballots that would be needed at that location? Because now we don't have true historical records because we've been doing vote centers. We would have to, you know, do a lot more preparation. The same is true for early voting. And in order to open that up, how much of the ballot stock pre-printed do we need at each location? Another factor to consider is that printed paper ballots are not marked as uniformly as express vote ballots. Karen Siebold says this means it will take longer to count ballots. Which also leads to mistrust in the process. The more time we spend vote, counting the vote, the more you have the politicians out there saying, hey, something's going on. These votes are being, you know, uh, there's there's something, you know, fraudulent happening with these these paper ballots. And so... It's not necessarily going to improve trust in elections when you revert back to paper ballots. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've paid a lot of attention to this move back to wanting to do hand counts on the pre-printed paper ballots. Jennifer Price again. Is because I know and I trust the system and we do logic and accuracy testing and we program our own elections here in Washington County, but not every voter knows everything I know. And so I I can understand. They're, they're seeing things on the national news level. They'll see things on a local news level as well. You see Facebook posts. You see all sorts of things. So what do you trust? Price says she always encourages people to reach out to their local election commission if they have questions or concerns. And of course, you can always go watch the election process happen yourself. Janine Perry certainly does. You're someone who enjoys going on election days, <laughs> hanging out, watching the process happen. You're a poll worker. What would you say to someone who is genuinely concerned about the security and integrity of elections from that vantage point, right? As someone who like watches it happen. Get off the computer <laughs> and off your phone uh, and off whatever your television station is, your preferred like bubble medium, and come watch elections actually happen. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore.
And you can learn much more about voting and voting history at the Traveling Smithsonian Exhibition currently on the campus of John Brown University. Voices and Votes, Democracy in America can be viewed on the JBU campus through October 20th. And we were guests of JBU last week for a panel discussion about voting. That conversation was recorded and we'll hear excerpts soon on future editions of Ozarks at Large. KUAF has been here to bring people together through the unique bond of public radio, inspiring Northwest Arkansas with a world of diverse art and culture, offering an exceptional community focus driven by our commitment to meet the information needs of our listeners. Because the mission of KUAF's independent reporting is to serve you, not advertisers or shareholders or the bottom line, this station you know and trust is always relevant to the moment, to our community, and to listeners wherever they reside. KUAF has always relied on member support for the great majority of our funding, but in our new normal, our reliance on your generous support is greater than ever. That's why your donation right now is so important. Visit KUAF.com and donate today. Ahead, Vital Ramamuti performs around the world, and he's had some memorable audiences. The former uh, U.S. President Barack Obama, sir, when he came to India, in the Rashtrapati Bhavan, we call it as, that is the um, uh, center for the, the government center, Rashtrapati Bhavan. There we, I, I was invited to play a violin solo concert with the top uh, percussion artists, and we gave a concert for him. He'll be on the University of Arkansas campus tomorrow night, and in about five minutes, we'll hear him play Carnatic music in our Furman Garner Performance Studio. Elliot Aronson was bullied as a small child. When he became a teenager, he became one of the bullies himself, for reasons that made sense to him at the time. I wanted to make sure that they didn't include me with the group that was being bullied. How we justify our actions to ourselves, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. That's Saturday afternoon at 3 and Sunday morning at 6 on KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. The Arkansas Senate is approving a bill to cap state income taxes at 4.4% for individuals earning over $24,000 a year. Republican Senator Jonathan Dismang introduced SB 8 to the special session, which began yesterday. Bill Kopsky, the executive director of the Arkansas Public Policy Panel, spoke against the bill in a committee meeting. He said Arkansas state taxes burden middle class and low income families more than any other group. Kopsky said tax relief in Arkansas should focus on supporting low earning Arkansans. We rank near last on most quality of life measures from education to poverty to life expectancy. This bill makes no investments in anything we need to rise above that national floor, and it squanders an opportunity to invest in what would improve conditions for all of our communities. Senator Spang did not address opposing voices, instead focusing on his ongoing efforts to cut taxes. And there was a reference to about $1.6 billion worth of income taxes that have been cut so far. I would tell you that I strongly advocated and was successful doing so along with my colleagues and ensuring that we lowered the income taxes for the middle class and Arkansas working families and the low low income earners here in this state. So again, just a little bit of history and perspective I think is important. The bill passed without opposition from the committee and goes to the full Senate. After the first day of the session, Arkansas lawmakers failed to advance legislation curtailing the state's Freedom of Information Act. 
Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders' call to consider changes to FOIA has prompted complaints from both liberal and conservative activists and lawmakers, as well as several press groups in Arkansas. The House of Representatives adjourned yesterday afternoon before the bill could be heard by committee. The Senate was scheduled to meet at 6 p.m. yesterday to change consider changes to the bill. And by 7.30, Senate President Pro Tem Bart Hester said there would be no bill to discuss. Late last night, a new version of the FOIA bill was filed. The bicycle-friendly business boot camp is being hosted tomorrow by Experience Fayetteville in collaboration with the city of Fayetteville and the nonprofit League of American Bicyclists. Brandon Pack is the director of cycling tourism for Experience Fayetteville. He says the boot camp is a complimentary workshop for business owners in Fayetteville and the surrounding area who want their businesses to become more bicycle friendly. Both as a means to create a better work environment and create a, a better place to work, being supportive of their employees that want or need to commute by bicycle. Businesses can apply for designation as a nationally recognized bicycle-friendly business. With the complimentary one-day workshop, PAC says a study in 2022 shows a $159 million annual impact from cycling in northwest Arkansas alone, with $59 million of that coming just from cycling tourism. And so you can see why business owners are starting to, as they hear those numbers and they start to hear about the business benefits associated with cycling tourism, how they can become pretty interested in what it truly means to be bicycle friendly and how they can engage this, you know, new visitor that the region is seeing as we've developed such award-winning and world-class trail infrastructure. The boot camp is entering its fifth year, and PAC says it's been successful. So far, the city of Fayetteville has 50 nationally recognized bicycle-friendly businesses. Which is the third most in the country, and not per capita. We're decent size, but there's definitely larger communities across northwest Arkansas, and regardless of size, Fayetteville now has the third most bicycle-friendly businesses in the country. The event begins on Wednesday morning at 9. This is Ozarks at Large. Tomorrow night, we have a rare chance to see a master of Carnatic music in performance. Vital Ramamuti will perform in Gearhart Hall on the University of Arkansas campus as a guest of the U of A Honors College, the Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, the Rave Cultural Foundation, and the University of Arkansas Music Department. Carnatic music, mostly associated with southern India, evolved from ancient Hindu texts and traditions. Last week, Vital Ramamuti came to the Furman Gardner Performance Studio at KUAF to discuss his career in music and play for us. With him was our friend Nikolai Radon, an instructor in the university's music department and director of the World Music Ensemble. Vital Ramamuti says his grandfather and mother, as well as some world-renowned teachers, provided his instruction early on. My grandfather actually uh, wanted to learn music, so he started. He's the first one in our family to start music. And once uh, he uh, got into music and he was uh, a... high school teacher, music teacher. So when he wanted all his daughters to learn music. And my mother, she um, came to, of course, our village and married my father. And uh, there was no much scope to learn or uh, go further in music studies. So she, her only uh, uh, thing is she wanted all her children to be musicians either musicians or agriculturists. So we end up going to other towns to learn music. And of course, I ended up coming to 
Chennai. Chennai is uh, the capital for Carnatic music, whatever I am playing. So I learned from the icon of Carnatic music, I can say, the violin maestro Lal Gudi Jayaraman, late Lal Gudi Jayaraman. Then I started performing and that's how my journey on music started. Along with my college studies, I did my accounting, masters mm -hmm. and all those, and then I came back to it. It sounds as if the music took to you or you took to it quickly as a child. Yes. You didn't rebel and say, no, I didn't want to do this. Or uh, In the beginning stages, of course, in the maybe in the childhood, my mother used to force me and uh, father maybe yelled at me a few times. But later, once I got into the college level, then I was actually dreaming that I am in a concert, even though I was playing only the basic notes, but my dreams were like I am playing for thousands of people and people were clapping and I am doing aut autographs and everything. That was how I got inspired by the music. And every practice session I used to think like that and I play my best. So in the, at, in the room, wherever I was practicing. That's how I inspired and uh, I got very good opportunities from the beginning teachers and uh, the <coughs> my colleagues who are learning, my friends who all supported me to do that. Nikolai, I'm going to ask a two-part question. The value that students, perhaps music students have, and the value that those of us who aren't students have, being exposed to music maybe we didn't grow up with or, or have never had the chance to see live. Well, um, that, that isn't partially true. But in, if, you, if you search into, go deep into the improvisation, that is the kind of what we have in jazz mm -hmm. implementation and a lot of classical music that especially were going in 1960s, uh, like minimalist composer Philip Glass. The, we see actually kind of continuous uh, studies, deep studies in the Carnatic music from the musicians like uh, John Coltrane, uh, uh, Pat Metini also used uh, um, or studied the techniques and varieties of the uh, improvisation techniques that can be implemented in jazz. So it's been going on for a really long time in, ja in jazz music and the classical world as well. So it is really uh, a kind of fantastic opportunity for the students to also get the, to the roots and really understand what is the roots, uh, what the roots look like, uh, looks like, then, then, then actually they can learn more and they will know how to find their own language, uh, imp implementing something that is very uh, uh, rich, uh, diverse, and uh, in, in any case, very influential in the, our Western music. What's the instrument that you brought in? Yeah, I have brought the violin. So violin, of course, it's an European instrument and Western instrument, instrument we call. So in the 18th century, when Britishers were ruling in India, so lots of violin came to our country and our musicians sat through, researched, and they modified the tuning and they modified the posture of playing it and made it suitable for uh, the Indian music. So because of the capacity of the violin to bring out the human voice very close to the human voice, so now violin became one of the very prominent instruments in the Carnatic music field. So there is any concert, any vocal concert or a flute concert or a saxophone concert, there will be a violin accompanying him. on the. So it will be a second fiddle, I can mm -hmm. say. 
and uh, of course carnatic music is all about the lyrics lyrics takes always the prime role so the violinist tries to play the lyrics on the violin with the, with the use of the bow he can bring out the grace of the lyrics on the violin and uh, of course the melody and everything so that's how i so i mastered violin and my guruji lalgudi jayaraman as i told he is a violin master i learnt but uh, violin from him but learning vocal music is very important you should know the lyrics of the song the mood of the song then we will apply it on the violin so that's how it comes well would you perform for us yeah i yeah. can perform and then i can come back to yeah. you yes Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks. We should explain that for those of us who grew up in the Ozarks and called the violin a fiddle, we know that it's traditionally under sort of, you know, on the shoulder under the neck. Yeah. And from that way, that's not what you were doing, is it? Yes. Because we as I told you, we changed the posture of playing and tuning everything in the violin. So we give lot of uh, ornamentations to the notes. So to sit on the floor and holding the violin between the chin and the leg will uh, provide us a grip on the violin so that we can play that glissandos very well, the, the ornamentations very well. I mentioned that you've played thousands of concerts, many, many different places. What concerts stand out to you? Oh, there are quite a few concerts <laughs> which are very special. I played one concert in uh, JFK Performing Center in uh, Washington, D.C., where... 
for all the carnatic icons were there and i was participated in that concert which is mostly attended by all the mm, government people and when uh, the the former uh, us president barack obama sir when he came to india in the rashtrapati bhavan we call it as that is the mm, uh, center for the, the government center rashtrapati bhavan there we i i was invited to play violin solo concert with the top uh, percussion artist and we gave a concert for him and of course in madras music academy i was played some very memorable concerts with the very uh, respected musicians of carnatic music yes and i've uh, forgot actually to mention that uh, um master vital ramamurthy is not going to be alone we are going to also have yes puvalur uh, shri ji on the <coughs> mridangam a, a drum instruments of south india so he is going to accompany me on the mridangam so there will be lot of dialogues between the drum and the so it's a melody and a rhythm uh, dialogue yeah. it is definitely a concert that shouldn't be missed it's a really great opportunity for everyone who is around here to hear this thank you both for coming in thank, thank you, you so thank much thank you mr kai for uh, Vital Ramamuti came to the Furman Garner Performance Studio last week. The performance is tomorrow night at 6.30 in Gerhard Hall on the University of Arkansas campus. We also heard from Nikolai Radon, an instructor in the University of Arkansas Music Department and director of the World Music Ensemble. This is Ozarks at Large. This week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas offers an update on operations to narrow the gap between Northwest Arkansas's population growth and the area's health care options. Host Randy Wilburn talks with Ryan Cork, Vice President of Healthcare and Education at the Northwest Arkansas Council, and Walter Harris, CEO of the Art and Wellness Enterprise. Their 45-minute conversation covers strategies to bring more health care to the region, the relationship between art, policy, and health, as well as innovation in modern health delivery. In this excerpt, Ryan Cork explains how a Northwest Arkansas Council-backed effort led to exploring the state of healthcare in Northwest Arkansas. And so they commissioned a study that really grasped and detailed out what was called out-migration. So it's healthcare dollars leaving our community. It's time lost from work, time lost from school, travel, plus the actual cost of, of the healthcare leaving. And that total sum or some total came back to roughly $1 billion a year that was leaving, right? I mean, imagine any industry, if you lose a billion dollars a year, you know, there, there's some obvious, some changes that, that need to come about. So we looked at that. We looked into specific surgery lines or, or surgical lines. We looked into some medicine lines. And then what other factors were attributing, you know, patients to leave? Medical education was one, medical students, another, and then having expanded access to clinical care. Off of that, our plan was put together in collaboration concert with Walter and others about, as a region, how can we address that, close these gaps, and essentially, who can do what, right? As we're assigning, you know, if, if you think of us as, as a team and each person, he or she has their, their plays that they're running or their routes that they're running. And that's what we're doing as, as an institution of Northwest Arkansas, made up of, of individual players, but yet all on the same one larger team. And then tackling this, and, and I'm sure Walter will get into what they're doing in, in the med school and, and others, but looking at graduate medical education first, increasing the state's complement of residents by almost 200 additional residents 
that we've worked with, uh, the Alice School of Medicine, Whole Health Institute, Washington Regional Medical Center, and University of Arkansas Medical Sciences. So for the state, we already have a win that we can keep 200 more medical students now. That will then create more residencies. So we have new attending physicians and specialties that we don't currently have and or don't have enough access of, which was driving or a major drive behind the outmigration. And so we're looking to solve that problem and then expanding through new hires, partnerships, collaborations, just existing service lines that are there that it may take years to build up from a human capital workforce. And so looking to pool our resources of how we can do some work right now. And, and we've systematically chipped away at, at the reasons why this outmigration was happening. And I, I do believe now, and data supports that some of this outmigration is, is starting to in migrate, which is what our, our goal is. We aren't at the billion dollar mark yet, but working together as a cohesive community to look to to turn around, you know, the the proverbial ship that was that that report of of the the out migration and healthcare dollars leaving the market. You know, it's funny when you say all of that. I think about the fact that I relocated here from Boston, and I've mentioned this before on my podcast. Obviously, Boston has no shortage of great hospitals, great medical resources. And that was actually a legitimate concern that my wife had when moving here. All three of my boys were born at Brigham and Women's, which was like for a while was like one of the number one birthing hospitals. And, you know, one of the things I said to her is I said, well, you know, things are happening here in Northwest Arkansas. We are growing by leaps and bounds. And it's just a matter of time. I didn't realize how prophetic those words would be that. In just a few short years after that statement that I made to my wife, and I think I, I mentioned that to her probably again in 2014, that we now have what we have in our own backyard with the, the looming potential of what the Alice Walton School of Medicine represents, the whole health institute. I mean, there's just and, and everything, all of the work that the council is doing to bring all of these different parties together to the same table. I, I think it's important. And I think people need to be aware of that, right? It's one of those things where you want to say to people, hey, just be patient. It's coming. We are building that field of dreams that we've been talking about when it comes to healthcare. And it, it's coming slowly but surely. Would you, would you say that's an accurate statement, Walter? Absolutely. I, you know, I go back to Ryan's comment about the community coming together to make things happen. This is exactly what's happening with uh, all the efforts that Alice Walton is working with. You know, Ryan talked about how GME took UAMS, uh, Alice Walton Foundation, took the School of Medicine, and took the, the North Arkansas Council all to come together to make GME happen. So what we're doing now is, is we're going to take it a step further and, and say that the School of Medicine, if you're going to change the way medicine is taught, I mean, it's, going, it's rendered, you got to change the way it's taught. So the Alice Walton School of Medicine is doing just that. We're bringing a new breed of doctors in who actually can look at patients in a different light, right? You know, if I had my way, I will give every medical school student a return on investment calculator to determine why would I give a shot? Why would I send someone to the ER versus why would I provide them with other lines of services upstream to keep people healthy? So the School of Medicine is designed to teach doctors to self-care so that when they talk to patients, they can teach the patients to self-care, right? What good is it to teach a doctor only the I's and O's and don't teach them the humanities of, of medicine so that the patients can understand where they're coming from? So that's the School of Medicine. The whole health institute is really designed to rally the community around issues, to guide them to where resources are, to work closely with the Northwood Arkansas Council, and to make sure that we are we got the primary issues together. And by the way, 
Ryan talked about the region of, of Northwest Arkansas coming together. We classify the region as states beyond Arkansas, right? Rural health is, is about partnering with many beyond Arkansas and us coming together around the same level of commonalities and issues that we face. I think gathering malls does make impact happen in a positive way. And then finally, the delivery pieces of this, and, and Ryan talked about out-migration, he's spot on right. How do you change that? And how do you change the way currently doctors and physicians and caregivers are providing services? And so it starts, again, it starts with the medical school, you have a, a group that's advocating for all the changes in the region, and then you have a delivery system that delivers all those things. And when those things all come together, you have what I call a well-rounded environment of healthcare and delivery in a region that's needed like this one. So it, it's well thought of that Alice Walton, through her personal learning experiences and habits that she experienced in healthcare, drove her to this. But the educational side, her family has always been involved in that, right? So now we have the best of all the things coming together in a region that is needing it. And so that, that's how I see it all playing together for Northwest Arkansas and beyond. The entire conversation with Ryan Cork, Walter Harris, and podcast host Randy Wilburn can be found at imnorthwestarkansas.com, kuaf.com, or by subscribing to the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast through any major podcast distributor. This is Ozarks at Large. In 2020, we met Skate, a young woman working for an organized crime syndicate. We met her in the novel Skate the Thief. Last year, we invited the book's author, Jeff Ayers, to our studio to talk about writing that book. It's the first in the Rag and Bone Chronicles. In the first book, Skate aligns herself with a wizard as a way to leave her crime bosses behind. Soon the sequel, Skate the Seeker, will be available. And with me in the Anthony and Susan Oye News Studio once again, Jeff Ayers, to tell us about the new book. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. Uh, when you and I talked about Skate the Thief, you had pretty much finished Skate the Seeker. What happens with Skate in this second go-round? Well, I don't want to give too much away, um, but there's a lot more traveling that's happening. Uh, she's trying to find a way to bring someone back, uh, and she has to go a pretty long way to do it. Uh, which is different from book one, which just takes place in one city. Um, in this one, I kind of got to flesh out the rest of the world around Skate a little bit more. Um, and so we're meeting new characters. We're uh, traveling to new places, um, uh, interacting with different people and different systems than we have before. So it's, it's, a, it's a different book. Was it then different writing it? Yes, it was much, and this is the first sequel that I've ever written. Um, and so there were a lot of problems that came up during the writing that I hadn't really anticipated. Problems. Yeah. Um, so when you're writing a first book, you've got a blank page. <laughs> so if you run into a problem, you can just immediately write your way out of it, whereas in book two... You've got rules established, and there are things that will work and won't work, and there's names of places that you've mentioned. Um, in fact, during the editing process, I realized that in book one, I had misnamed an entire country, and I had to, and in book two, I'm talking about that country all the time, so in book two, I had to 
how do I fix this, right? Because <laughs> this is definitely what I want it to be now, but that's not what I said then. Um, so I, I had to find a, a workaround, around, and it's just those nitty-gritty details, which is not what I'm good at. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm The part of writing that I like more is the, 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 you know, the right brain, the creative, have fun, do something new. But this one I had to have, you know, editor Jeff on my shoulder the whole time going, no, you can't do that. No, that's not going to work. No, you have to change that because that's not what you already said. I I think there is a tendency to think, well, if you're dealing with magic and some fantasy, the rules are looser. But really, I imagine they get tighter. Yes. Because readers are paying so much attention to what kind of magic can work where and how. That's exactly right. Um, and there's there's ways around that. Um, when you think of, you know, Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, he kept all of that very under wraps as far as, like, what it could do. We see glimpses of what, like, Gandalf can do in the story. Um, but no one ever, like, sits down and explains it. Um, but then you've got... Uh, the other end of that spectrum, like Harry Potter, where you have to have this component and you have right. to say these were like the rules are really clearly delineated. Um, and on that spectrum, I'm probably in Skate's world, I'm probably closer to um, here are some rules and the way that some of it works. Um, and yeah, as the series goes on, more of that has to come out and the rules get tighter like there are just some things that it can't do you mentioned there's a lot of travel i think when we open up this book skate the seeker we're going to have a map in front of us that's right very excited i'm a big fan of maps in general especially fantasy maps um and i didn't really need one for book one that we were just in one place the whole time um I, i briefly considered like trying to map out the city but it wasn't really necessary uh, for this one, even my editor was like, I'm having trouble visualizing where we're going, even with the you know directions and stuff that I put in the actual text. Um, and so I was the one that suggested, could we get a map made? Uh, and they said, yes. And so I was very excited about that. Um, I've already got that up um, uh, online on my website, um, Jeff Ayers Writes. Um, if you want to get a glimpse of what the map is going to look like, I've already got it up. Uh, but the plan is to have that in the the physical book when it comes out. How do you get the map constructed? Do you go to a cartographer? Do you? Yeah. So th- we found somebody uh, online um, who who does this. I had to make a very rough, bad sketch of it because I am not in any way skilled with drawings of any kind. Um, and so we, we talked with this person and, you know, what do you need from us? What can we do? And what he needed was a, a really rough sketch. And it went through a couple of revisions to get it like, yes, that is what I had in my head. Um, and that's one of the things that writers, uh, whether you're traditionally published or self-published, um, there's tools out there for you um, that you can use. There's people offering services like that now. Uh, that I just don't know if they were as easily available, you know, 20 years ago. You're a school teacher in the Rogers School District, and you're going to be teaching um, 
creative writing this time around? That's right. That's right. I uh, I had people sign up for my creative writing class. I've got a syllabus written up for it. I've got the first few weeks planned out day to day. Um, of course, the nature of these things is those plans might get thrown out the window <laughs> at a moment's notice, but they are on paper and I've got stuff ready to go for them. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm very excited about creative. We're going to be focused on uh, narrative writing, short stories is going to be what we're mostly focused on, uh, just talking about the the craft and um, purpose of, of writing creatively. So on one hand, I would think if I'm going to take creative writing as a teenager, I'd want it to be someone who's a, had several novels published, like right. you have. On the other hand, if I'm a novelist, I think I might be terrified of teenage critics. <laughs> I think I'm terrified of teenage critics no matter what. Listen, uh, the, the, the critics are, are, are there already. Um, most of the people that I've talked to in person who have read my book have liked it, mm-hmm. and that includes teenagers who typically don't like much of anything. So that's, uh, that's encouraging. My favorite review that I've ever gotten um, was a one-star review uh, and they they didn't just rate it one star. They left a review on there that said, I didn't know this was a children's book. And that was the entire review. <laughs> and they rated it one star because I had bamboozled them into thinking it was something else, apparently. Uh, it's oh. It's one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. Um, so <laughs> as long as I'm not getting that, okay. I think I'll be okay. And I would like to point out that, yes, this is something that younger readers, readers younger than you and I can read, but it, it's fine for older readers too. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Um, it's, it's classified as young adult, but a lot of my readers aren't that young. Um, it's Anybody can enjoy it. Um, and that's true for a lot of, not all, but a lot of YA fiction. It might be geared toward more um, youthful readers, but anybody can enjoy it. Um, and that was always my goal is, yes, I wanted to write a story sort of focused on that age group, uh, primarily meant for people of that age group to read, but I also wanted it to be something that anybody could pick up and enjoy um, and that's sort of my plan for anything that I'm writing um, is even if I do have a particular audience in mind, I don't want to cut anybody out. I don't want to uh, make any reader feel like this isn't for them. So even if you're not uh, uh, a young adult or um, anybody in that age group, you'll still like the books, and that's true for a lot of YA books. Yeah. And I think I think YA sometimes gets kind of a bad rap for that um, because you, it's not just for those people. Um, it's, it's for everybody, and that's one of the dangers of the label. Um, but it is what it is. Skate the Seeker is the second book. There will be a third. Yes. And is it? Just set as a trilogy, or are we going to have Skate with us for a while? I'm trying to do four. Okay. Uh, when I when I planned all this out, um, uh, books one and two, and then books three and four uh, are the are the pairs. Uh, book three and four are still going to be about Skate, um, and 
I need to start getting the writing actually started on book three. Um, right now I'm still in the planning stages and deciding, you know, major plot points and where we're going, um, the order of events and things like that. But the plan was always book one and two, uh, really tight, close together. And then book three and four really tight, close together. Um, and that is my full plan for the okay. series. Yeah. I know that some authors, when they have a popular character, they're ready to move on. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle actually killed Sherlock Holmes once. Famously, yeah. And had to bring him back. The, 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 <laughs> out, the public outcry yes. was, was too much, yeah. Can you see a point where you're thinking, though, after four books, Skate, no offense, I'm just going to – we're going to separate for at least a while. Right. Um, maybe. I, if If people – clamor for more uh, content of of course I'll be willing to come back to the table but uh, my plan has always been uh, to finish okay. the story in four um, if if people want it we can do it we can always do it um, but right now that is the plan Jeff thanks for coming back to Ozarks at Large thanks for having me in. you'll be back here for the third and fourth books as well if you'll have me okay the second book of Jeff Ayer's Rag and Bone Chronicles, Skate the Seeker, is available today. He spoke with us last month. You can find out more at jeffayersauthor.weebly.com. Tomorrow on Ozarks, a rising industry of outdoor recreation in northwest Arkansas. And no, we're not talking cycling this time. Climbing's always been here. It's Arkansas is an amazing resource for rock climbing. I, I think it's been overlooked for a long time. People, you know, they, they look to Colorado or they look to the Appalachian Mountains, somewhere that has, you know, just it's really in your face. It's big. It's there. So it's a little more spread out here. Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis belays us down the mountain and talks climbing tomorrow at noon and seven on Ozarks at Large. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Massard Creek. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Randy Wilburn and Vic Hernandez, Ozarks at Large's fall intern. Welcome aboard, Vic. Additional reporting provided by the news team at KUAR, Little Rock Public Radio. We do have a new show for you tomorrow. You can always listen to us when you want on your schedule. Just subscribe to the free Ozarks at Large podcast. That's right. And if you ever miss a story, you ever want to see photos or uh, a transcript of the story, you can find that at OzarksAtLarge.com. You can also find our daily newsletter there, and you can play the daily newsword game, too. Oh, I haven't done that yet today, but I will. All right. Uh, thanks for being with us from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks and be well. Historic Cane Hill presents the Cane Hill Harvest Festival, Saturday, September 16th, just 20 miles south of Fayetteville. This day of community traditions and family activities kicks off with an Ozark Country breakfast and features live music, crafts, and demonstrations. Guests can also enjoy the Arts and Eats Market, Kids Zone, and more. Full schedule and tickets at historiccanehillar.org. KUAF is supported by Mockingbird Kitchen, offering indoor dining, patio dining, online ordering, and curbside pickup, Wednesday through Sunday. Modern Ozark dishes available for lunch, dinner, weekend brunch, and catering. MockingbirdKitchen.com for information.